0: Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I am the aforementioned pastor. If you have questions about planning, center, or serving, come talk to me. I'd love to chat with you about that. But just want to say welcome. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you'd be a part of our church, and, and uh, we'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged into that. Uh, we'd also love to invite you into a brand new sermon series. Uh, we uh, just began last week. Uh, we're working our way verse by verse through the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to a guy named Titus. And Titus, we saw last week, was one of Paul's most kind of trusted ministry partners, fellow pastors and church planners, and, and as such, he was a guy that Paul really entrusted with some of his more... Uh, The more challenging ministry assignments. We saw last week how an especially challenging ministry assignment uh, was the reason for this most recent letter that Paul had just written to him. And Paul, we saw, had left Titus on the island of Crete. And maybe here this morning you're thinking, that does not sound that hard, right? Like that sounds like a nice Mediterranean vacation spot, right? I bet you they got those drinks with the little umbrellas on top. Everybody likes those, right? You know? But that's, that's not how anyone would have thought about the island of Crete. Right? It was infamous for being a place at that time that was the most dangerous and immoral places in the ancient world at the time. The island's cities were plagued by, uh, were plagued by violence and sexual corruption. The ancient historian Polybius, he, he said that it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. It's so like their chief god Zeus, Cretans were known as being incredibly untrustworthy, duplicitous people. The term Cretan was a word that was used like as a slang term to talk about someone who was a liar. Top it all off, their chief export, the main occupation on Crete, was mercenary soldiers. Guys who were known for being uh, notoriously treacherous and greedy. And so it's like, in that kind of context, you kind of think like, wow, I, I, I wonder how things were going in those church plants. That seems like a challenging situation. And you'd be right, right? You would be right. Things we find as we read Titus' letter, Paul's letter to Titus, things, things were challenging there. And they weren't going especially great. Instead of living as countercultural lights for Christ in the darkness of Crete, we find that the lives of many of the people a part of these churches were, they didn't look much different than their pagan neighbors. And that brings us to the, the job that Paul left Titus in Crete to do. See, so the main thing Paul wants Titus to spend him time, his time doing is to help the Christians, who, uh, people who have come to faith in Christ in these churches in Crete, they, to become increasingly characterized by being people who love and do and teach what is good. It's a phrase that comes up at least seven times in this short three chapters of this letter. We saw last week how growth in goodness, it's not about just like doing random acts of kindness or just good deeds. Uh, It's not about a passive absence of bad behavior, but instead this idea of growing in goodness is about being characterized by the active pursuit of all that is true and right and good. Ultimately, we saw how goodness, it's, it's about being more like our good God. Instead of reflecting the attitudes and attributes of Zeus, Paul's heart for these Cretan Christians is that they would look more and more like Jesus. See, the goal wasn't just to make converts. The goal was to make disciples. People who didn't just profess Jesus with their mouths, but whose whose life demonstrated the transforming work of the gospel. So as we continue our study this morning, what we're going to see is that that helping the people in Crete, helping the churches there to be increasingly characterized by godliness, by growth in goodness, what Paul's going to help us to see is that that begins by appointing, it begins with appointing godly leaders. Leaders whose lives and whose teaching don't reflect the culture and the gods of Crete, but instead reflect the culture and the God of the Bible reflect his truth and goodness. And they set an example for others to follow. And so with that in mind, we're going to pray. We'll dive into our our time in Titus this morning and see how God's word helps us to think about what it looks like to be a people who lead people uh, towards goodness and godliness. So let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful for you and for our time together in your word this morning and God, we just uh, are grateful that like your word is not just some old document with some like old information about stuff that happened a long time ago, but that it is relevant and timeless and both timely for our lives. And so God, as we pray, we, we want to be a church that looks like Jesus. We want to be a church that honors you. We want to be a church that, that is growing in godliness ourselves and helping others to do it. And so we pray that you'd help us to see and to live in response to the way that leadership impacts that this morning. And so uh, we need you for that. We need you to be shaping our time together and empowering me as I teach. And, and so we we just we really need you, God. And we pray that for our good and for your glory, you'd keep showing us more of yourself this morning. We pray, Amen. Well, like I mentioned, we're going to be in Titus chapter one, uh, verses five through nine this morning. It reads this way. The reason I left you in Crete, again, this is Paul writing to Titus here. The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, And since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, I think as we think about the role of leaders in our lives, it's, I think everybody can agree that leaders really have a big impact on our lives. They can really have a significant impact on our lives. Some leaders, they're really good. And, and they have positive impacts and positive effects in our lives. I'm sure right now you can think of parents or uh, teachers, coaches, bosses, mentors, uh Maybe pastors who have challenged you, encouraged you, spurred you on towards growth in your life in various ways. I'm sure as well, though, some of you have plenty of stories of leaders who have had the exact opposite effect, leaders who have had a negative impact on your life, people whose influence was detrimental to you, not not beneficial to you. And the reality is that good and bad leadership alike, it doesn't just affect individuals, it affects whole groups and whole organizations. Right? It has an impact. Uh, good leaders can help businesses and teams and even whole countries thrive and grow, while bad leaders can have the exact opposite effect. It's just the old adage, right? As, as goes the leader, so goes the team. And that reality is nothing new. 2,000 years ago, Paul understood the impact that leaders have on people and on organizations, the church included. Which is why the place he tells Titus to, to begin the work of helping Christians in Crete to grow in godliness is by the appointment of leaders in all the churches. He writes in verse 5, he says, The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That word elders there, uh, it's this term for for leaders in the church, top-level leaders in the church. In verse 7, we see Paul use the term overseers to describe these leaders. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see Paul and Peter using the term pastor or shepherd to describe this kind of leader in the church. The the point is, is that whenever you hear those words, elder, pastor, overseer, that's all talking about the same role, the same position. The the same responsibilities in the church. It's it's talking about the the top-level leadership of a church. And this is a side note, but that's why if you go on our website or if you hear Aaron and I talking, you'll you'll notice that we use those terms interchangeably here at River City. Right? All elders are pastors. All pastors are elders. It's just the same thing. Some pastors and elders, like Aaron and I, are employed by the church. We will work full-time doing ministry. Uh, Sometimes people refer to that kind of an elder as a staff elder. Uh, Others, like John Lightbody, are known as lay elders. right? And the difference being that that while lay elders have the same standing and authority and influence uh, as any paid or staff elder does, they're just not employed by the church. John, for example, works as an engineer at Wright Height. Just to be clear, it's not like there's like the Bible differentiates between staff elders and lay elders. Like that's just a description of what's of what's going on there, right? And also, it's not like uh, lay elders are like JV elders, right? Like your staff elders, those are the really important ones, right? That's varsity eldership. That's varsity pastors, and then you got JV guys who just like kind of do it on the side for funsies, right? Like that—that's not what's going on there, right? John's responsibility is just a little bit different because he's not doing it full time. Which, by the way, is probably how the vast majority of pastors and elders in the early church functioned. So Titus is supposed to appoint elders, pastors, shepherds. He's to appoint these top-level leaders in the churches in Crete. The question is, what is he supposed to look for? What's what's the thing? Right? What makes a good leader? What's the rubric you use for evaluating if someone's going to be a good pastor or shepherd or, or overseer? Well, is it, is it age-based, right? When we hear the word elder, that's what we tend to think of, right? But that can't really be the case because Jesus was the best leader of all time and he didn't make it past his mid-30s, right? The book of Acts, the apostle Paul uh, tell, was referred to as a young man. And when Paul sends Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus, he told him not to let anyone look down on him because of his young age, right? So, so age, is that that's not, the, that's not the factor here. Well, what about, what is it, is it just like past... Uh, success in life or ministry, right? Is it looking for people who have success in other areas of life, like business or finance, right? Verse 7, he uses the term overseer or manager in reference to the, the leaders that Titus is supposed to appoint. But that, that can't be it either, right? Because when you just a cursory look at the list of criteria Paul lays out for us here, uh, what you find is that it's real clear the church is not structured or run like a business. And Paul's emphasis is definitely not on uh, like past worldly success or on skills and abilities. Right? Instead, the criteria Paul wants Titus to focus on when selecting and structuring leaders in the church is their character and their doctrine. Right? In other words, he wants them to focus on the way that they live and what they believe and teach. Yes, Paul does give some instructions on what leaders need to be able to do. We'll see that a little bit in verse 7 and verse 9. But the overwhelming focus is not on what these elders and pastors and leaders are supposed to do. It's on who they are. See, because what Paul understands is that if the goal of all gospel ministry is to help others to grow in godliness, then you have to start with people and leaders who are setting an example of godliness with their own lives, Right, you're not looking for worldly leaders who will impress people with their own skills and abilities. Right, you're looking for godly leaders whose character and his teaching is going to point people past themselves and towards onto Jesus, the God that they worship and the God that they serve. And so character and doctrine, faith and life, that's the, that's the big E on the eye chart for, that Paul wants Titus to get. You're looking for those things. And as we take a look at the criteria that Paul lays out for Titus in the passage, What we see is that there's there's kind of like three main spheres in which Titus should be evaluating the the lives and the character of these potential leaders. We see the first in verse 6 is that the first area, the first sphere, is is their home life. In verse 6, Paul writes, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. He goes on then in verse 7 to describe the church as God's household. Now, the exact meaning of Paul's words here has been the subject of all kinds of debate over the centuries. But the big idea of verse 6 is that if you want to get a sense for the kind of spiritual leader a guy's going to be in the church, then the first place you look is the people he leads in his home. That's the first place you look. All right, when it comes to his marriage and his parenting, an elder should be the kind of person whose life is consistent with their faith. It's, it's not that their marriage is perfect or that their kids are just like this bastion of like everything children should be, right? Like, that, that's not what's going on there. But it's that these areas of their life don't give anyone a reason to doubt or question the integrity of their faith. Right? One commentator put it this way he said, The word blameless there in verse six it doesn't mean unblemished, it means unimpeachable. Right? It's like an elder should be the kind of guy that you're just like, you're not worried about, you're not concerned about, you're not bringing charges against. Now be clear, what Paul's not trying to say is that you can't be a pastor or an elder if you're not married or if you don't have kids. Uh, besides the fact that your marital or parental status doesn't really tell you anything about a person's character, which is clearly the main thing, uh, that qualification would disqualify Jesus. Right? And if your qualifications for leadership disqualify Jesus and Paul and Ty- like if it disqualifies all those people, you need to rethink your qualifications. right? Like that, That's not what's going on there. So what is Paul getting at specifically? Well, that phrase, faithful to his wife, it literally translates this idea as an elder should be a one-woman man. Now, some people think that that means a pastor and elder can't ever have been divorced or remarried, but I think uh, one commentator sums it up better when he says, the phrasing Paul uses seems less concerned with one's marital history and more concerned on whether they're perceived as someone who is living in honesty, faithfulness, and devotion to their spouse now. See, the question is, does this guy's relationship with his wife Does it reflect the purity and the faithfulness of Jesus towards his bride, the church? Or is it a relationship instead that's characterized by impropriety and unfaithfulness? Is he just kind of a flirt? Is he addicted to pornography? Is he sleeping around, right? If you aren't being faithful to your own wife, then you're for sure not being faithful to an invisible God. And you definitely are not going to be able to help anybody else do either of those things. Additionally, if you're not helping your own family, your own kids become more like God, then how are you going to help anybody else do the same? Right? That's what Paul's getting at in that next section where he talks about a man whose children believe and who are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. On the surface, that, that, that section, it, it seems like Paul is saying you can't be an elder unless your kids are Christians who are currently walking with Jesus, and there's more problems with that than we have time to get into this morning, chief among which is the reality that every parent who wants their kids to love and follow Jesus knows that you are not the one who's in control of their heart. Like you, As much as you want to, you don't have control of your kids' hearts. You could be the best, most godly parent ever, and if God doesn't change your kids' hearts and show them his glory and his goodness, like they're not going to believe in him so if the requirement isn't about your kids being kind of regenerate followers of Christ, what is it then? Well, if you look in your Bible for this verse, you'll probably find a little footnote right next to that word, right next to that section. And it'll probably say something to the effect of uh, that phrase, children who believe, can also be translated as children who are faithful. I think that's probably a better translation because uh, it seems to align with the part that immediately follows about the children not being wild and disobedient, as well as the the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3 where Paul focuses on the idea that elders' children must be characterized by obedience. When you combine that with the fact that the word he's using here is a word that's directed towards like little kids or children, you come away with the impression that what Paul's telling Titus to look for here Right is, is fathers who create a culture in their homes where their children are growing in godliness and obedience. Right, one commentator I think summed it up best, he said, Paul's terminology is not so much requiring us to examine children's professed testimonies as it is to evaluate whether children, in a manner appropriate with their age, are exhibiting evidence of a consistent biblical discipline and spiritual nurture. Right? Is, is this guy, is he creating a Christian home? Is he directing and leading his family towards the Lord? Or is it just like, like a home that just looks like the rest of the world? All right, which direction is this family going? At this point, I just want to take a moment too as well to highlight one other thing that maybe you have picked up on in Paul's writing or just in the language that I have been using this morning. And that's all of the, the male pronouns, right? Husband, father, his, And We don't have time to do the deep dive on this this morning, but that is intentional. That's because at River City, we're convinced that the passages like this and numerous others in the New Testament make clear both implicitly and explicitly that while every other role of ministry and leadership in the church is open to both qualified men and women alike— that the office of pastor or elder is uniquely and singularly resu- reserved for qualified men. And what that means in practice here at River City is that we operate kind of under the general principle that anything a man who isn't an elder can do, a woman who isn't an elder is also should and be able to do. All right, we want to encourage... And equip and empower women to serve and to lead in all kinds of ways because we are absolutely convinced that the contributions of women towards gospel ministry is both, uh, is, is both essential and indispensable. So what we're not trying to say by this role of pastor-elder uh, being for men is that like, men are somehow better leaders or that they're more qualified in some way, shape, or form or that there's like some inherent like special thing about guys that makes them like, qualified for this role. That's not what we're doing. But what we do want to say is that we want to empower and equip people to serve in ways that are in line with the scriptures. If you have more questions about that, I'd encourage you, come talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to talk with you about that. I'll also include a link uh, to a really well-written article that we encourage all the members at River City to read through, but that Aaron wrote a couple years back that really does a great job of outlining some of the specifics of, about that position uh, in really helpful and clear ways. A bunch of great footnotes and references, stuff you can read later on your own. But for now, I'll just say this. The question that everyone always asks is, Why? Right? Why, why is this? What, what's so special about this? Like, why is this role something that that seems to be reserved for, for, for qualified men? Right? Well, the honest truth is that the Bible just does not give us a specific answer. I would love to just point you to a verse and be like, here's what it says. Bam. There it is. Right? But the truth is the Bible just doesn't give us as much clarity as we'd like. Right? What I will say for sure is that it doesn't have anything to do with men being in some way better or superior leaders to women. Scripture never says that, right? and just like the experience of life shows that. There are plenty of women who are way better leaders than me. Right? Like that is that's not what's going on there. right? Instead, I'll, I'll quote Kathy Keller. I think she really winsomely, she writes this. She says, I found it fruitless to question God's disposition to things I don't understand confidence in his goodness has always been a better choice and that's my heart right? that we would be a people who trust the goodness of God even if we don't understand exactly why he lays everything out the way he does so home life right that's the first sphere where a potential pastor or elder's character should be evaluated right he's he's not just but he's not just supposed to be blameless with regards to the way he relates to his family He's supposed to be blameless with regards to his public life as well. Verse 7 goes on, he says, He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Right, Paul begins this section with by listing five things that should not be true of potential pastors and elders. Right? And what pretty much every commentator notes is that all the things on that list of knots, that all that stuff is things that Crete was known for. Right? Like that's like that's the MO of a Cretian man. Right? If you remember, we talked basically about how the main occupation in Crete was to be a mercenary soldier, right? Basically, Crete was an island full of like Mediterranean pirates for hire, right? Like th- like that's what Crete was. Right? And if you've seen any of those great Johnny Depp movies from a decade past, right, what you know is that pirates, like their whole thing is being known as overbearing, quick tempered, drunk, violent, greedy. Like that describes them to a T. Like that's that's a resume of a pirate, right? Like that's how that goes. See, but what Paul is telling Titus, he says, but that was funny, by the way, people. No one laughed. That was a good joke, right? Nobody? Okay. All right, well, see, what Paul is he's telling Titus, right? He says, what you're looking for in elders are guys whose lives have been transformed by the gospel, right? So that their, so that their old way of living, it doesn't characterize them anymore, right? It, it's not who they are anymore, They don't look like Cretans who reflect the character of their god, Zeus. They look like Christians whose lives are increasingly reflecting the character of Jesus. That's what's supposed to characterize these kinds of people. What we see is that Jesus was a guy who wasn't overbearing at all. He wasn't self-centered. He wasn't brash. What characterized and, and fulfilled Jesus was that he was hospitable. He cared more about the outsider than he did about himself, and he opened his heart and his life to people so that they would know that they were welcomed and loved. And although he ate and drank with sinners on plenty of occasions, he himself was never drunk, and he wasn't ruled by his own passions and pleasures. He ruled over them. He's the ultimate example of what it looks like to be someone who is self-controlled and disciplined. And where the men of Crete loved money and would do anything that they had in order to get it, no matter how violent or wicked it might have been, Jesus himself instead loved and did what was good. And he paid the ultimate ultimate price so that you and I might be set free from slavery to sin and instead be empowered and set free to love him and to give ourselves to pursuing what is true and right and good. Where Cretans were set apart from the world by their decadence in their sin and corruption, Jesus was set apart by his devotion to the Father, by his holiness, by his purity. When it comes... See, the the idea Paul's trying to get across, is that when it comes to the way an elder thinks and acts and relates to the world and the people around him, with regards to his public life, he needs to be the kind of man who others see as someone who reflects the character of Jesus not the ways of the world. Right, this is not about perfection, right? It's not about having like every, t, you know, every i dot every t cross, like that's not exactly what's going on, but it's about like this marked visible prog- progression in Christ likeness. See, but there's one more area of an elder's life Paul wants Timothy to take a close look at. You see that in verse 9, it's their spiritual life. He goes on, he says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. See, Paul's saying, Titus, they're like, You're not just looking for people whose external lives reflect Jesus' character. You want guys for whom that external change is the result of an internal transformation of their heart and their mind. They've come to see and believe the truth about God is made known in Christ and proclaimed to them by the apostles, and they've staked their lives on the good news of the gospel, not just being a truth, not being an option, but being the truth. And there's no way they're gonna budge on that. No matter what trial or temptation or theological fad comes along. That's where they're anchored. The truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. The reason why that is so important is because one of the main jobs of a pastor or elder is to teach those truths to others. Verse 9 continues, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. Why? So that He can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Listen, there is not much in this list that Paul gives about an elder's skills or abilities, right? That's not the emphasis of the, of the list. But one thing Paul says that an elder has to be able to do is to teach the truth of God's word to others, to help others grow in their faith to by, as, by helping them to expand their understanding and knowledge of the truths about God. We saw Paul talking about that in verse one of last week. Now, I'll just say this. I think an error that... A lot of Christians tend to make, a lot of churches tend to make, is that they focus too heavily on this last part. Right? Like the only thing you really evaluate much is like, can a guy preach? Right? And if he's interesting or funny or uses like a lot of big theological words that impress you, then like, that's great. He's probably good to go. I'm sure the godliness stuff will follow. Right? But that's not how any of that works. Right? History is littered with the wreckage of churches and people's lives. Who have been damaged by pastors and elders whose giftedness outpaced their godliness. Right? See, competence, it really matters, right? Like, if you can't teach God's word, if you can't help people grow and understand it, like, well, then, like, being an elder is not gonna be a good fit for you. But if you are the most gifted Bible teacher in the world and you don't have character to go along with it, it's just totally worthless and pointless. It doesn't matter. You see, character, it matters more than competence. Competence is important, but it's not the main thing. One pastor put it this way he said, Give me holy and humble over gifted and dynamic any day of the week. That's what we want our leaders and our pastors to be characterized by. See, if the Christians in Crete were going to be growing in godliness, If they were going to grow in goodness, if their attitudes and actions were going to start looking more like Jesus than that of Zeus and the culture around them, then they were not going to need the most talented leaders. They were going to need the most godly leaders. They were going to need men whose lives and whose teaching reflected the goodness and the truth of God himself. That's the thing that mattered the most. Just spoiler alert, that is not a low bar that's not a low bar. That is an incredibly high calling. You look at that list of qualifications and you realize that the calling of a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, an overseer, that is a high calling. It's not easy. It is difficult. And the question that you're bound to ask then is, where do those people come from? And where do you get people like that? Where do you find them? How do you become somebody like that? Well, the answer is true, just as it is for pastors, as it is for everybody else. The way that you become a person who reflects the truth and goodness of God is by continually coming back to the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus. Because what you find there is that he is, like he has been and is that kind of a leader for you. Not just in general, he's that kind of a leader for you. When you look to the gospel, you see Jesus' spotless perfection. You see his utter unimpeachability. And you don't look at it as this example that you could never live up to, but you see it as a substitute for all your imperfection. And then what happens is you start to want to live for him and his glory instead of your own. And you see his faithfulness to you, his bride, the church, in the midst of all of your unfaithfulness to him. And it fills you with a longing to be faithful to your spouse. And you see his loving parental discipline of you and it empowers you to keep entering into the hard work of parenting your own kids and pointing them towards Jesus and towards the kind of relationship and obedience with God that he wants them to be characterized by. And you see Jesus' patient and gentle leadership of you. You see him not forcing himself on you, not overbearing, but wooing you to himself captivating your heart calling you to nearness to him you see his self-control and his discipline you look at his utter refusal to give into temptation and sin so that he might be the sacrifice the substitute that you needed him to be for you And it compels you to be the kind of person who rules over their passions and desires, not one who's ruled by them, not because you're trying to impress somebody or get something from God, but because you see the price that he paid so that you could be holy. And you see his devotion to the Father and the good of others, leading him into and through all kinds of hard situations. And instead of running towards comfort and shirking your responsibilities, it leads you to press in and to seek the good of, the, of those that God has entrusted under your care. And you see how Jesus, how his leadership was not for dishonest gain. He didn't use you for his own advantage. But instead he gives himself up so that you can use him for your advantage right? And what that does is just roots out this like hunger for like glory in yourself. And it roots out all these selfish desires and this dishonest gain. And instead of wanting people to know your name and to be famous yourself, what happens is you start giving your life so that other people would put their faith in his name. See, the gospel is the good news that doesn't just turn sinners into saints. It's the good news that turns regular people into pastors, it's the same for everybody. See, the gospel motivates and empowers a love for God that gets worked out in a lifetime of growing in godliness and in helping others to do the same. The pastors need the gospel just as much as everybody else. And it's the good news of the gospel that we remember and celebrate every week when we take communion together and remind ourselves about the person and the work of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed, so that we might become the kind of people that can reflect his truth and goodness in a way we never could have before. And so communion doesn't make you right with Jesus. It doesn't change your status with him. It doesn't change how he looks at you or how he sees you. It's a chance, it's said, for you to remember who he is and all he has done for you. To remember him as your chief shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Who seeks their good at, the, at his own expense. So if you put your trust in Jesus, or if you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. Dip the bread in the juice. Let it be a reminder of all that Jesus has done for you. Let it fill you with hope and love for him that leads you to a life committed to growing in godliness. But if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out what it means for him to be your leader and your pastor and your chief shepherd, and you're not even sure if you can trust him to do that stuff. I want to encourage you. You are welcome here. But hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you are the good shepherd I really need. That trusts him with everything that says, I will follow and submit to you in all things. And I know that it's good. And so communion might not be right for you yet this morning. And that's okay. But Jesus is. And so come to him. Put your faith in him. Be a part of a community that points you to him. Wherever you're at, though, this morning, I want to encourage you, as we remember the gospel in communion and in song, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here, and you want to be pastors or elders someday. And that is good. First Timothy chapter 3 Paul tells him whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task right to desire to be an elder and a pastor and a leader that is good and right like that's good to do but I want to encourage you the place that you start isn't skills it's not abilities it's not bible college it's not seminary the place that you start is with your character Listen, I am not anti-theological training. Aaron and I, your pastors, we both in, we both have theological training. Like that is like we want that to happen. We want that to grow. I'm not anti that. I'm just saying that that's not what qualifies you for leadership in gospel ministry. Focus on your character. Focus on your heart attitudes, your internal motives. When you look at the criteria Paul lays out here for an elder, where are the areas in your own life where you see room for growth? Where do you see rough edges that need to get smoothed over? Where do you see gaps that need to be filled in? Where do you see more of the world than you do of Jesus? If you're not sure, ask your spouse or your siblings. They'll always tell you the truth, right? Right. But the truth is, is that it's not this this list of criteria Paul gives Titus. It's not just a list of qualities that future pastors future elders should try to aspire to or that current pastors or elders need to be evaluated by right? it, like it's not like an elder can't be a drunkard but that's fine for you right like it's not like an, an elder can't be faithful like can, has to be faithful to their spouse but like you can just sleep around and that's fine right like it's not like an elder has to be gentle and patient but you can just like be a jerk and flip people off in traffic when you don't like them right like that's that's not what's going on here Right? These are all qualities that all Christians are called to be characterized by. And the reason you can't be an elder if you don't meet these is that you're not walking as faithfully with Jesus as you should be yourself. And so you won't be able to help anybody else follow him well. And so yes, this is absolutely a passage for leaders, about leaders, but it's also for you and about you too, no matter where you're at. And I want to encourage you, ask the question, Where is God needing to shape your life and character so that it reflects His truth and His goodness? What about your life, what about your character needs to be shaped and reformed so that you are more like Jesus and less like the world? That's a question all of us need to be asking. Leaders, members, visitors, like every one of us. Lastly, I just want to encourage you not just to use this list of qualities as something to aspire to yourselves or future leaders, something to evaluate leaders by, but to use it as a list that shapes your prayers for your leaders now. Listen. I am so grateful for this church and for the work that God is doing in and through you. When, he, when the writer of Hebrews talks about how like, a church should like submit to the, the leadership it has so that their, their job will be a joy and a blessing, I'm just like, you guys nailed that. Like, you're doing so good with that. Like, I love getting to be your pastor and your leader. But this job is still hard. And the character it requires isn't natural. It doesn't come naturally to anybody. And so I would urge you, be pleading with God, be praying for your leaders for Aaron, for John for I and for whoever else God might appoint in the future be praying that God would be growing us in all of these qualities that it wouldn't just, it's not just like a yes/ no right it's like are we looking more and more like Jesus every day be praying that God would be doing that work in us that he would be causing us to keep growing in and being characterized by these things more and more and that he, he would do that. One, for your good, so that we might be a blessing to you and a service to you and a help to you. But also that we might be, a, that ultimately our church would be a place that glorifies Him. All right, we want to be leaders who lead our church to grow in godliness, not because we're perfect, but because Jesus is and we're running hard after Him. And so, where might God be shaping you? How might you be praying for your leaders? And how might all of us be coming back to the good news of the gospel so that we would have the power and motivation to keep being leaders like Jesus is in every way? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for you. And as we come this morning to look at a list of qualifications for leaders that feels high and hard, like it's not a low bar, we are grateful, Jesus, that like, you don't just tell us to like live up to some list and then do something different yourself. And also that you don't just like barely sneak over that bar like Jesus. You just like, it's like it, you are the perfect example of all of these things. And you're not just an example, you lead us this way. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, might the good news of your pastoral shepherding leadership in our lives, might it shape us so that we increasingly, leaders like all of us, Jesus, that we reflect your goodness and your truth with our lives and in our character. Make that true of all of us, Jesus, especially our leaders. Would you do that, God, so that we might show the world your goodness and truth, and that it might be beautiful and captivating as it should be. We pray. Amen.